Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Eric Messerschmidt, an Emmy-nominated cinematographer who many already predict is guaranteed an Oscar nomination later this year for his work on the upcoming David Fincher movie, Mank. Eric's career is still ongoing but already an impressive one, and his credits include the HBO series Raised by Wolves, as well as Mindhunter, an original Netflix show that follows two FBI agents in the 1970s tasked with interviewing the most twisted American serial killers to solve open cases. Much like Mindhunter, Mank was also produced and directed by David Fincher with the movie set to be released via Netflix on December 4th. In today's conversation, we discuss a wide range of topics. Eric's beginnings in the film industry working as a gaffer for some of the best cinematographers and how that shaped him into becoming a better DP. A deep dive into the cinematography for the first two Emmy-nominated seasons of Mindhunter and the innovative techniques that the filmmakers adopted specifically for the show Also, Eric's creative relationship with David Fincher and the thought process behind the infamous multiple takes Fincher is so known for, how classic Hollywood noirs of the 30s and 40s influenced the visual style of their new movie Mank, all of this and much more. If it's your first time enjoying the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Axis. But now... Without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Eric, thank you so, so much for for taking the time to join us on the show. I am excited to talk to you about Mindhunter, potentially a little bit of Mank, but I wanted to begin by asking you about your earlier experience as a gaffer and how that informs your understanding of cinematography. So you became an ASC member in February of 2020. Congratulations on that. And I know that the lighting side of things has been a key passion of yours since you were a student. So... When it comes to influence, what has been your creative approach to light by studying the work of Jeff Cronenworth and Gordon Willis? And why do you think your 17 years experience as a gaffer has made you a better cinematographer? I think anytime you have the opportunity to work for a master, it's impossible not to learn anything when you, you know, you, for me anyway, you know, be, working with Jeff, working for Claudia Miranda, working for Faden, all the DPs I work for, you know, you, I learned something every single day by watching them solve the problems they were confronted with. And, you know, it's, if you happen to work for people that you admire, who have some shared taste, or, you know, you're attracted to the work they're doing, it's, it's even better, you know, so I was fortunate, I was working for people whose work I, I really admired and spoke to me artistically, and they're inspiring people as artists, but also as human beings, you know, so I, I think, you know, my time working, particularly with Jeff and Claudio, you know, not only are they exceptional DPs, but they are exceptional human beings, and, you know, in how they manage the crew, and how they uh, you know, their family life, everything about how they approach the job rubbed off on me in great ways. So, you know, that was that was a really good experience for me. But I mean, specific to lighting, I think, you know, and you mentioned Gordon Willis. I initially, when I was in school, kind of naively thought that it was all about the lighting. Like that's where you started. You read books about cinematography and you watch movies and you sort of, you know, we're, we're very seduced by lighting. And because I was in the lighting department, you know, <laughs> people in the film business, they 
tend to be a little bit myopic and they tend to be a little bit narcissistic around, around their own part to play, I think. So it's like, oh, if you're in the lighting department, oh, you're like the lighting department, it must be the most important department. And that, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth, but it takes, a, it takes some time to figure that out. And I guess what I'm saying is like every decision we make as DPs comes from a point of view of where we're putting the camera and where the actors are in the space relative to the frame. You know, obviously we make informed choices based on how on the lighting approach we might be taking or the makeup of the room or the set or, or whatever. But it, it took a little bit of time for me to really recognize that that is absolutely the best place to start from. And I think when you look at Gordon Willis's work, that is so evident. You know, he really understood that you figure out where you're going to put the camera first with the director. You really have a plan in place. And then you figure out how to, how to light it and what the solutions are going to be. And otherwise, you're kind of wagging the dog. And once I sort of saw a number of DPs work that way, and I think most successful DPs work that way, you know, they really look at it from the camera point of view in terms of what the blocking is, what the staging is, what the camera direction is, and then they make all those choices as, um, as a result of those decisions. That made all the lighting choices a lot easier, I guess. You know, it's like once you have all that under control, then, you, you know, it's like, oh, well, of course I want this backlit, so I want that window, that, you know, I'm going to use that window or I'm going to put a light up there or whatever. I, I wanted to ask you for a second about your relationship with gaffer Danny Gonzalez because, you know, it's interesting. I, I was watching Benjamin Button a couple nights ago, and it's interesting to notice how Claudio Miranda also started out gaffing with Fincher on The Game and Fight Club, and Benjamin Button became his first experience as a, as a cinematographer with Fincher specifically. So both you and Danny climbed the ladder, we could say. He was your chief lighting technician on Gone Girl. And when we discussed, you know, influences for Mindhunter, you mentioned, you know, films of the 70s, like All the President's Men, shot by Gordon Willis, by the way. So why do you think that embracing practical sources and using a lot of top lighting, we're, we're now entering and talking specifically about Mindhunter, why do you think this was the right approach? You're talking about minimal relighting from shot to shot. And how has your dialogue with Danny evolved from your first days on Gone Girl to, let's say, the last days on Mank? Oh, well, Danny and I go way back. I mean, I think we first started working together in 2004, 2005. So, you know, we are friends. And we have definitely come up through, you know, when I was a gaffer, he worked as an electrician for me, you know, all the way up to Gone Girl. I mean, that relationship with a gaffer is is crucial because as a DP, you know, you are often pulled in lots of different directions. You know, all day people come asking you questions. You know, the, the director, obviously, in some cases, the actors, the, the producer, the, the on-set dresser, the operator, you know, every, you're constantly answering questions and sort of directing your attention to various people on the set. So if you have a relationship with a gaffer who can run with the ball, to a large degree, that's unbelievably advantageous to a DP, you know? So having a long history with someone who understands your sensibility aesthetically and, you know, understands the technique you like to work with is really helpful. And Danny is an example of that. I mean, Danny is, he has excellent taste. He really knows the tool set that I like to work with. He brings something to the party. He is visually minded. You know, he's not just a technician, he's an artist in his own right. And that, you know, that's fantastic. And, you know, in regards to Mindhunter, we knew we had a very specific style we were going for, and it was top light, and it was practically lit, and it was not overly stylized in terms of like being lit. You know, we weren't really trying to model people's faces, for example. We weren't really, we're not looking for chiaroscuro. You know, it, it wasn't this kind of bold thing. 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that wasn't the show. And that was something that Danny and I and, and David kind of developed together. You know, we all kind of, you know, you sort of go through, you go down that path in the first few episodes of a show and you figure out what it is you're doing. And, and a lot of it is informed by taste. And a lot of it is informed, quite frankly, about logistics and the realities of the scenes. Mindhunter is a show that's told in cuts. It's told in lots of pieces of coverage. A huge portion of the scenes are people sitting across the table from each other and having a discussion which means you have to move the camera around quite a bit. The screen direction acts as shifts and it's, you know, it's, it can be quite complex. So lighting a lot shot to shot is not really practical in that circumstance. You know, it's not really a realistic endeavor. So, you know, we sort of have to, by nature of the type of, of storytelling we were doing, endeavor to light it as much as we could once for the predominant angles we, were, we knew we were going to use. And there's always instances in that where you sort of are going to lose, you know, I mean, and Gordon Willis said it, I think it's a quote of his. He said, well, there's always one angle, or maybe it was Harris, you know, he's like, there's always one angle where you lose in a scene. You know, there's always one shot where you give up on or whatever, you know, give up on, which is not really true because, I mean, that's true, but it's important because it's not really about the lighting. You know, it has to be about the story and the audience has to believe that you're there and they have to feel like it's relevant. And, you know, that once you manicure it to death, the otherworldly aspect of, you know, the kind of uncanny valley of it can get, get in the way of the story, I think. So by rooting it a little bit in realism and lighting it once and letting, you know, one or two angles be flat on occasion is okay. But, you know, the, I think the style of Mindhunter definitely, particularly the use of top light, you know, was mostly motivated around just the amount of the sheer amount of coverage we were doing. And then, you know, it, it kind of develops its own aesthetic around that. And, but you, know, you try to do it as tastefully as you can. It's not easy butchering people. It's hard work. Physically and mentally, I don't think people realize you need to vent. You know, there's a lot more like me. Do you think so? 40 years ago, your FBI was founded hunting down John Dillinger. Now, we have extreme violence between strangers. We travel around the country and teach FBI techniques to cops. You guys mind if I bother you for a minute? She was found cuffed and lashed to the bed. What people won't do to each other. There's nothing people won't do. How can we help? We should be using every resource we can, talking to the smartest people we find from the broadest possible spectrum. Are criminals born? Or are they formed? Psychopaths are convinced that there's nothing wrong with them. So these men are virtually impossible to study. Yet you have found a way in near perfect laboratory conditions. Hello, ladies. That's what makes this so exciting and potentially so far reaching. It is not our job to commiserate with these people. It is our job to electrocute them. We can't like everything we do. We're talking to serial killers. Serial killers. New terminology. I'm trying to warn you, your attitude is going to bite you in the ass. So young to be ruining people's lives. What you do you're developing a pattern of behavior that will not sustain you here agent ford if you leave i can't help you there's no procedural rule book for how to talk to these people if any of this is going to work we need to talk to more subjects more you want truffles you got to get in the dirt with the pigs i just want to take a step back and kind of frame our conversation about the visual language of, of mind hunter my first quote for today quote mind hunter is a show that's about restraint 
Creatively, it's all about what you're choosing not to do and not what you're choosing to do. We chose to limit our use of handheld, avoid Steadicam, and enforce composition through structured set frames to allow the actors to work within that frame as opposed to follow them around. Often we'll frame for the backgrounds and then place the actors within a shot. Close quote. When you first joined the show, why do you think in your mind and David Fincher's, the more rigid language of dolly sticks and occasionally cranes was the right way to tonally and emotionally represent the world of Mindhunter? You know, David was interested in telling the story objectively. He wanted the audience to feel like they were observing the room and not partaking in the conversation. And then we would use point of view and subjective techniques when they were appropriate. But for the most part, you know, you're sort of in this room observing the thing that's happening. And, you know, I think we both felt like when you see the cameras obviously operated subconsciously, the audience associates that with operating, you know, in the world of reality television, the world of, of cable news, when you see someone is clearly operating the camera, it lends to this kind of, they're not just a fly on the wall in the conversation. You know, it's like there's someone else in the room. And that was something David did not want in the show. You know, I think he, he really wanted the show to feel like you're, you're just this passive observer. But it's not voyeuristic either. You know, it's not like we're on a long lens, you know, kind of around the corner, peeking through doorways and stuff like that. It's you're, you're in the space, but the camera has no real presence in the audience's experience of the scene. But I think when you implement that kind of rigid style across the board, when you do cut to a point of view or you do cut to some, you know, when you when you put the audience suddenly inside Holden's head or Bill Tench's head or a serial killer's head and they're looking right off the map box into a close-up, it is that much more powerful. You know, there's sort of this drug tolerance that the audience gets. You know, if they're if they're constantly, if you're constantly moving the camera, you're constantly operating the shot and there's, you know, there's lots of long lens close-ups and stuff, that's a stylistic choice. But then when you do cut to that long lens close-up and you do put the audience in someone's head, there's an argument to be made that it's less powerful because they're so used to it, you know, they're conditioned. And I think we were kind of interested in exploring that in the show. And also, I, I think there was an attachment, you know, this kind of desire, the reference to kind of old filmmaking techniques of like framing for the background and, and holding the actors accountable to the marks and really like making composed frames. If you're following the actors around the room, it's very difficult to make a framed composition. You know, the, the operator has to kind of make these constant dynamic choices, which is a skill and it's a skill of note. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this particular instance, you know, we were really trying to make these very structured, rigid thoughtful compositions, you know, in advance. So we would block for those things. We'd set the camera, you know, in many cases first and, you know, sort of position the actors within the frame and figure out where they were going to be. And I mean, it's just, a, it's a type of filmmaking. There isn't one that's better or worse. It's just the one we were doing, you know. As a cinematographer, I wonder what kind of sensibility do you look for in operators like Brian Osmond? And how do you work with the operators and the focus pullers, by the way, in this rehearsal process to make sure that they too become, you know, performers in the scene? Sure. Well, I mean, first, Brian Osmond is unbelievably talented. He's incredible. And every time I have the opportunity to work with Brian, I'm thrilled. He is a true master. You know, operating as a skill in this particular type of operating is very, very difficult. And it requires rehearsal and coordination and trust with the actor. And you know, have to work in concert with them. So you have to have a very tight relationship. And and you also really need the collaboration of the, of the actors. And the actors have to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. So there's a great deal of communication that happens in terms of 
the actor letting the operator know that at certain points in the scene they're gonna they're gonna lean in, for example, or they're gonna stand up in this line at this pace, and and the operators would come into the blocking rehearsal and they would they'd have the sides out and they'd take notes on what was happening, what the decisions that had been made by by the actors and and by the directors in terms of their choreography. And you'd see Brian writing down, okay, on this line, and he says the word two on this line, he that's when he leans in. It means the actors have to know that that's happening and they have, you know, they can't lean in a word early. You know what I mean? And part of that too is, is about editorial continuity and, and making sure those things happen shot to shot in, in terms of the entirety of the coverage so that it gives the editor flexibility in terms of when they want to cut on the action. Because if, if you have consistency take to take shot to shot of all of that choreography, it makes the editing process a lot easier. Um, you know, and some might argue that that's that's restrictive on the actors. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily true because, you know, there's a lot of rehearsal that goes into sort of figuring out those beats and, and thinking about them thematically and from a performance standpoint well in advance. And then they sort of just go through the motion. And, and once you have all that nailed, then they're just executing that performance, you know, kind of like a stage play to some degree. But it's a style, you know. My communication with Brian is very much like, we, you know, we would sort of set the shots together and we would with the director, obviously, and we'd go out there and we'd frame everything. And I always do that first. I always want to set the frame first. And then I'd go to Danny and, you know, in the grips and we'd, you know, we'd figure out how we were going to light it from there. But but we all, you know, we usually start from this place of like, this is where the camera's going to be. And then map out as much of the coverage as we could relative to that master shot or that first shot where we were starting in the scene. And then, you know, go through the process of, okay, well, this is going to be next and we'll come in here and we'll do this close up, we'll do this over and, we'll, you know, this will track over when she leans. And then when they go to the filing cabinet, we'll pan and push in here, you know, those sorts of conversations. And then, you know, after we have that kind of general idea, we can proceed with the lighting. Blocking is obviously such a huge part of how the show is told. When you have eight, nine minute scenes, you're not going to get away with, you know, three angles and that'll be it all scenes feel like you're renewing the visual language because there's such a crazy amount of coverage going on. How do you discuss which angles are going to be the most emotional to cover a scene? And do you have a set amount of angles that you think should be implemented in a scene? It can't be less than 15 or we don't need to make it over 20. Yeah, well, coverage is obviously it's up to the director, you know, and there are directors that come in and they want to do pieces as, as one. And Carl Franklin did oneers and, and Asif Kapadia did, you know, in the first season, he did, you know, single tracking shots and, and, you know, you know, maybe a second camera. And we did, I would say 95% of the time we were rolling two cameras on Mindhunter. And there were absolutely instances where we'd bring out the third camera. If we could get an angle that, that was relevant without too much compromise. But, you know, in terms of designing and developing coverage, I mean, we knew we were going to work with overs. We were going to work with wide lens close-ups. I mean, not really wide, but, you know, sort of 35, 40 millimeter close-ups, tight eye lines, things like that. And the directors, you know, can, and, and in many cases did, you know, they would do stuff like, you know, put the camera really low or, or put the camera really high or, you know, we, it's like a puzzle, you know, you sort of put it together in your head. And I think, you know, for me, I love designing coverage and, and working with directors and figuring out how we're going to, how we're going to tell the scene visually with camera. For me, at least on, on Mindhunter, it was about rehearsal and watching the rehearsal and looking at those moments between the moments. And you, because a lot of it, too, is is not just what's said, you know, what the dialogue is, but it's those exchanges of looks between Holden and, and Tench. And there's, you know, those the sort of 
off dialogue glances, under the breath kind of eye rolls and stuff like that that are really crucial, particularly in long scenes. So we would watch the rehearsal and the actors are doing stuff. And a lot of that isn't directed, you know, it's just instinctual because they understand the material and they're, they're going to do certain things. And then you have to, sometimes I think you have to remind, you're like, oh, are you going to glance at him at that moment? Because that's really good, you know, but you only see it if you happen to be looking for it or you're on that other side and you're like, you know, so we would run the rehearsal many times, you know, sometimes for an hour or so in the morning and they would really work it out. And, you know, the directors and I would sit, we'd watch it from over Jonathan Groff's shoulder and over Holt's shoulder and, you know, from the back of the room and look at, you know, and I'd have a finder there and we'd look at the wide shots and see how the shots could develop. And then you go in and you lean in and we'd watch it again. And, you know, sometimes I'd sit right next to the other actor and, and they're very used to that, you know, so they were okay with it, but, you know, we'd sit really close and see the lean-ins and look at, look at how the natural lighting in the set is, is affecting them. And, you know, thinking about how little like I had to do lighting wise, but um, in terms of, to answer the question of how much coverage, you know, it's a judgment. You think about the scene and, and think about how many, how many pieces you need. And on long scenes, it's generally to the director's advantage to have more pieces because it's really difficult to control pace. You know, if you don't have options and the ability to like trim a few frames and really accelerate a conversation as the drama accelerates is a hard thing to judge in, in the act of shooting it sometimes, particularly on a long scene. I think it's very difficult for, for directors and actors, and certainly for me to really judge if, if the pace is where we need it. And so having options to cut and you know cut to a close up and, and play with or, the order of dialogue and all that stuff is helpful. So we did a fair amount of coverage, obviously, but ultimately, it's up to the director. You touched on something which is a multicam thing. We had the luxury of talking to Jan de Bond, who started out as a cinematographer in Die Hard and he became a director. He's very action-oriented, obviously. And we're talking about one instance in speed where, the, especially back in the 90s, they didn't have the options, which is what you guys have, where you can easily just cancel out a crew in VFX if for three seconds in one shot, they enter frame. In regards to sacrificing one angle for another, that is something that maybe in 2020 you don't have to worry about anymore. So when you're shooting with two cameras, do you feel more at ease in regards to choosing what literally are the best angles for a scene, knowing that you could erase the crew in the background or something like that? It's less about the intersection of what the cameras see, and it's more about their relationship to the light. You know, so for example, if the style of your show requires that you do a lot of lighting shot to shot, you know, if you're really modeling someone's face and you're trying to keep a lot of contrast in the, in the image and you're trying to keep the backlights very linear and, you know, directly upstage of the lens and you're, you know, you don't want stuff to sneak around on someone's cheekbone or, or over, you know, to, to be on more on one person's shoulder than the other. You know, multiple camera shooting makes that more difficult because you, especially if they're off axis to each other, because, you know, one, one will have more wrap than the other. For example, if you're going to shoot a close up and you want, you know, you're going to do, go for some very, very stark, aggressive side light, and then you have another camera that's more three quarter or even profile, you may be missing that light on the shadow side. You know, you, you, so, you know, if you were going to do it as a single camera, when you do that profile, you'd sneak the key light around a little bit and wrap it slightly, right? In the single camera world, you don't really have to, you know, you can you can make those choices on a per shot basis, which is advantageous in a lot of situations, uh, certainly if, if the style is dictating that kind of work. You know, Mindhunter was not an example of that, really. We felt like we wanted those performance pieces and we wanted to be able to get multiple pieces of coverage. Everything is about compromise and it's about choices, you know, so it's like you give up one thing and you get another thing. You sort of, you have to weigh all the options and think about the story. And, and so for us, I think it was... It was very much about 
recognizing that one, we weren't going to do a lot of relighting shot to shot anyway, because the visual style of the show didn't call for it, which, which meant that we could put in a second camera and get a, you know, a wide eye line single, or we could get a two shot at the same time we got an over or whatever. And, um, you know, and I kind of like the challenge of that, to be honest, you know, we did some cross shooting where you shoot both sides and everyone's kind of side lit. And, you know, if you're, if you're in a kind of top lit style, those choices are easier to make. There's less quote unquote compromise, but there are also instances, you know, night, night scenes, for example, or stuff where I couldn't really do multi-camera shooting. Are we like, well, we got to save this angle until I can move that condor over here. And, you know, that's just the role of the cinematographer to kind of gauge those things and communicate them to the director and think about how those choices are going to impact the scene and the actress and the story and all that. You know, it's like everything you ask for has an effect down the road, you know. You're talking about consistency, to visual consistency in the show, and I wanted to really quickly touch on on lenses. The first season was shot, you know, 6K on a, on a Red Dragon sensor. Season two, you transition into 8K with helium, and you're using Leica Semilux Primes, which are beautiful lenses. Like most of the show employs, you know, a 25, a 29, a 40, and a 65 lens. You know, we started out our conversation talking about restricting one's choices. And in this case, it's focal lengths and it informs a project's aesthetic. So as you become more experienced as a cinematographer, what is the balance that you give to cameras as opposed to a lens to create the look of a story? And overall, because they're fairly close in result, what makes you choose whether to cover a master with a 25 or a 29, aside from instinct? You, you know, there's a couple things going on with optics. You have you have depth of field, obviously, but depth of field relates to distance of subject and iris position. I think in terms of choosing lenses for a specific shot, a lot of it is, is logistics. You know, it's like, okay, well, this let's take a look at this on a 25. We love these parallel lines in the ceiling or whatever, and, and we want to we want to go with that. We want to use perspective to our advantage here. We want to make a visual statement. So maybe a 21 or a 25 is appropriate. But sometimes that makes the space feel too big, you know, or it doesn't feel, you know, you know, you're going to get into 40 and 65 millimeter pieces of coverage because, it, it, you know, a lot of the scenes, people sitting around a table. So maybe the 29 is more appropriate and maybe it's more nodal and it's sort of straight up and more, you know, rectilinear. You know, there's no right or wrong. It's just you, you kind of develop a, a language for yourself and, you you know, you look at it that way. I mean, we happen to, we, we really like the 29, you know, the qualities of the 29 when it's focused at like 18 or 20 feet and you you feel the perspective of the lens and it's got, you know, just the slightest bit of distortion, but it's not so much where it's distracting like, a tw you know, 25 or 21 or an 18, but then you bring the 29 in close and it has, you know, it has different characteristics. It, it, you know, you, you feel the fall off really fast and the depth of field goes away and, you know, you bring a 29 in like three or four feet and it has totally different qualities. So, you know, that lens is really versatile. I don't know. I mean, it's, I think when it's purposeful and you have, a set of prime lenses and you if you're going to work that way it forces you to think about the shot in in relation to perspective point of view composition as opposed to you know if you have a zoom lens you might pick an arbitrary place in in the in the set and it, it can lead to a, an element of laziness to, to a large degree you know so because you you know to make an adjustment on the frame it's really easy to reach forward and go to 32 millimeters instead of 35 for example you know instead of moving the camera back slightly so the discipline that, that the prime lens forces you to make, it informs the aesthetic automatically, I guess I should say. 
So it's, it's an example of sort of creating restrictions for yourself that inadvertently lend themselves to the, the style. It's not to suggest, by the way, that zoom lenses or working that way isn't appropriate at all. I mean, it's totally right. It just wasn't right for this particular show. We're talking a lot about locations too, and I would be remiss not to ask about your relationship with production designer, Steve Arnold. There's this amazing quote by James Wan who says, if casting is half of directing, then location is half of cinematography. And I know that Steve Arnold keeps blocking in cinematography very much in mind when he's designing the layout of a set. And over the two seasons, obviously you, Eric, are keeping geographical location in mind. It's going to feel different when we're in Quantico as opposed to Atlanta. But there's so many interrogation scenes, so many prisons, basements. And I can imagine that any nuance or difference that you can infuse in a set to create visual variety, you'll jump at the chance. How do you try and embrace the strengths of an existing location? And I'm just curious to, to ask you a little bit about, you know, the difference between shooting on location as opposed to built sets, you know, and what one offers you that the other one doesn't, because my mind was freaking blown last night when I found out that part of the backyard of the Tench house is built in studio. And I was like, what? And I'm sure there's a reason for it. So I, I, I was just curious to ask you about that. It's, I mean, first of all, Steve Arnold is amazing. He's a master. He has incredible, like impeccable taste. And he really considers the story and the film and everyone else's role to play in his work. So in many cases, particularly on Mindhunter, you know, the cinematographer isn't involved in the initial selection of locations because we're shooting, you know, particularly in television. But, you know, Steve always considered lighting and he considered you know, he thinks like a photographer. So he thinks about position of windows and sun position and practicals and blocking when he's designing and, and, and working with the locations department. And, you know, not should also acknowledge that, you know, the locations department we had on Mindhunter was, was equally fantastic. Bill Doyle has an aesthetic point of view and, you know, has incredible sensibility. So he and Steve, they would find these remarkable locations and they would send me pictures and like, well, we're thinking about this. And Steve would say, maybe I'll put the table here and then you can use this window. You know, would that work for you? Or I know that this is north facing and maybe the blue light is cool. And, you know, do you want some practicals to, you know, how? And we would have this kind of open dialogue and this constant iMessage chat going back and forth with Steve and I sending things together, you know, back and forth. And that relationship is so important. I can't imagine doing Mindhunter without Steve Arnold. It would be impossible. You know, it's like if, if the practical isn't there, then I end up having to put something out of frame to take its place in many cases. And it's always worse. Anything I have to do outside of the frame, in my experience, is always worse than something in the frame. I mean, in terms of lighting anyway. So whether it's a window or a practical or, or whatever, you know, the absence of that creates things that I have to do. And Steve understands that. So he, he makes the cinematographer's life easy to a large degree by, by sort of doing some of your work for you. We sunk telephone poles in, in locations and put streetlights up. And, you know, man, I didn't have to put in condors. And it always looks better, in my opinion. So he's really attentive to those sorts of things. But, you know, in, in terms of, like, build versus set, a lot of it has to do with how long you're there and how much control you're going to need. You know, we had scenes, for example, that are eight or nine minutes long. And, you, you know, that might take a day or more to shoot. And maybe it's east facing and you only have sun in the morning. And it's like, well, shit, we can't. <laughs> it's not realistic. You know, we can't make the sunlight there for the rest of the afternoon. And Steve knows that. So he'd say, well, I think, I think we better build this. Or we got to find a location that's south facing. So you have consistent sun or consistent shit. You know, we'll find a north facing place or whatever. And also, you know, the, the reason the Tench backyard was built was because there's stuff that was there the entire season. You know, we keep going back to that location and we had stuff, you know, the interior, we need the ability to pull walls and, you know, 
we don't want to be on an, on a 16 millimeter lens the whole time when we're in there. So we have to be able to pull the wall so we can shoot it on a 29. So we build that set and then we, we're going to see in the backyard. So we know we have to build the backyard anyway. So then for those scenes that do take place in the backyard, some of them are shot on location and others are shot on, on stage with some help from visual effects at extension and stuff. So, you know, it's, that's also, you know, the magic of having someone like David Fincher on the, on the, on the show where he, you know, he can help navigate those decisions and advise and recognize yeah, you, you're right. You really need to build this or, well, you know, we'll try and shoot this on location. We understand the restrictions. You know, it's, it's just it's a it's a dynamic conversation always. I'm, I'm curious to ask you a little bit about working with cars, and I'm not necessarily talking about moving vehicles. One sequence in particular, which is the deserted parking lot with Bill Tench interrogating a Kevin in, in season two, episode two. There's a thousand ways I think you could craft shooting inside a car. You can pull out real glass and put a CG reflection. You can pull doors. So how has your comfort grown over the years in regards to treating these vehicle interiors with, with enough visual range? We, we kind of decided that with our car work, and, and the, the scene you referenced deviates from it a little bit, but we we kind of decided that there were really only so many places in a car you could put the camera before you're trying to be kind of slick, you know, which is fine. But we sort of thought, well, okay, the kind of raking two shot over the driver or the passenger, most of the stuff that happens in a car is, is conversation between driver and passenger, at least in Mindhunter, you know, they're not, there's not a lot of car chases where you're looking out the front door and, you know, there's, or the, you know, the windshield rather. It's mostly about some sort of interaction that's happening between two people in the car. So, you know, from that, we kind of decide, well, okay, we, we'll do, you know, this kind of raking overs, we'll do close-ups, you know, kind of point of views from the driver's perspective, from the passenger's perspective. We can do the kind of classic French over from the back seat, the two shot through the front windshield, which I think in most cases looks really hokey. It kind of looks like car 54, where are you? You know, it's impossible to get that shot to look good. So, I, you know, I, I, that's like the one shot in cinema I, I detest. It always looks like you're towing the car, you're not, it's not real, or, look, you know, it looks like the birds. It just doesn't really work. And, you know, and you have those, you know, those close-ups of people, you know, looking out the front windshield. So you have, you know, the front fender shot, of the, you know, the of driver passenger. Those are sort of the basic framework. And then you can deviate from, you can pull the door off and go on a 25 and go more on the, in someone's lap. But it's ostensibly the same shot, right? You deviate from those six angles, for example. So, you know, we kind of approached it like that and we're like, okay, well, it's really all of the car scenes in the show are for the most part expositional. They're sort of getting you from A and B, they're en route from or to an interview, or they're sort of debriefing each other on what just happened. So we don't need to be that slick with it. The interview in the parking garage with Kevin is different from that because it's like, a, it's actually an interview and it's an interview where... Kevin is trying to hide his face. And so David decided, he's like, well, let's, let's not show the audience's face either. So it's sort of from Bill Tench's point of view, or, or at least the audience is sort of watching Bill Tench take it all in. So we had to think about different ways to obscure Kevin's face, even though the scene is really long, you know, it's, it's like nine minutes long. So, you know, you can't just sit in one shot. All, I didn't, you know, people would shut the TV off. So yeah, you know, there's a little bit of, you need variety. And also you, you need variety to, to move the story along to a large degree. So we had to kind of amend that that style a little bit, that camera direction style and, and choose some different angles. That's just filmmaking. I mean, it's super fun, you know, but yeah, it was all done on stage because because it was it was a dawn scene and it's impossible to shoot a uh, nine minute scene that takes place at dawn on a real location, you know? This is Agent Tench. I'm gonna let him ask his questions. I don't know what else I can tell you. Thank you for coming, Kevin. 
What I'd like to do is ask you some questions, some of which you've heard before, some may be new. I'll listen to your story, but I'm going to focus on the suspect's behavior. I'm going to ask you to go into a lot of detail. Everything is important. All right. Could you really quickly, because I'm going to butcher the explanation, could you really quickly just talk about the concept of the plate van? Because I think it's fascinating. Oh, sure. All of the car work on Mindhunter is done on stage with green screen or blue screen comps uh, with interactive lighting, which is provided by plates. So we built a, a vehicle with 12 cameras on it, and we would pre-visualize all the shots for any given scene. So we would go in with the director and the actors in advance. In most cases, we would rehearse that scene and figure out which pieces of coverage we wanted. And then we would notate sort of all the camera telemetry of, you know, the positioning, the, the lens height, the tilt angle, the pan, focal length, focus distance. And then we would go to the plate van, which is set up to receive those angles. And we would, we would situate all those cameras in the corresponding angles. And then we would shoot the corresponding plates for each shot. So we, we're not doing panoramic. Most people shoot panoramic stitched plates. And then they go and they, you know, they, they shoot the scene and then those plates get de-warped in position. And, and we weren't doing that. We were actually shooting purposeful plates for each specific angle, which means that in, when they're doing the comp work, it makes it a lot easier because they literally drop them right in and they're just positioning the horizon for the most part. And maybe doing a little bit of keystone correction or warping or whatever, if it doesn't look quite right, but it's, you know, it's, it's damn close. And so the plate van allows you to, to roll all 12 cameras and, and drive down the street and get, get all the plates simultaneously. As I begin to wrap up our section on, on Mindhunter, I just want to ask you about scouting in general. How close to the shooting day do you scout a location? Because sometimes sun direction can change drastically from one month to the other. And I also know you use apps, by the way, on your our scouts. You know, we'll talk about how important it is to use what you can't really control, which is the sun, and spin that into an opportunity. In regards to when you're shooting scenes, exteriors, for example, over the course of multiple days, sometimes you want them all backlit and other times you embrace the front light and you try and shoot it on in, in one day. What is the decision making for which direction to take? Well, I mean, anytime you're putting a schedule together, there's going to be mitigating circumstances that you know that that affect those choices so sometimes it's location availability sometimes you pick a location because another location where you have to shoot a key scene happens to be close by and you need to make a company move you know there's so many factors that go into that conversation and not all of them are cinematography related oftentimes it's actor availability or location availability or you know the feasibility of the turnaround of the drivers you know there's all these things that go into those decisions and again, a lot of that is good production management, good location management, and, and people thinking about the big picture, which we have happen to have on Mindhunter, which you don't always have. So we had producers and and a locations department that really thinks about the you know the entire picture of the story. But sometimes you're in a situation where you you can't control what time of day you're going to be somewhere. You know, other times it's like, well, let's go with the front light. I think it's appropriate for the story. I mean, the one thing you can't control is the sun, but the one thing we can predict with absolute exaction is, is the sun position. And on any day, I know where the sun is going to be, thanks to the Greeks. So there's never a question about where it's going to be. There's lots of questions about whether or not they're going to be clouds, particularly in Western Pennsylvania, you know, or maybe it's raining, but we can plan well in advance, you know, where, where it's going to be and what it's going to hit. And we can pre-visualize all that. And so we use that to our advantage, obviously, but you know, there's so many factors. It's like a, you know, it's a chess game. You're sort of moving pieces around the table and trying to figure out what, what move is going to, is going to checkmate you, <laughs> you know, and, 
and you're trying to, th you know, plan for as much as possible and, and control is a huge part of it. You know, it's like if the sun's going to go behind that building at two o'clock and the rest of the scene has been established in sun, for me, that's a problem. It's a continuity problem that, that the audience is probably going to recognize, you know, and so you sort of have to figure out, well, maybe I can, if we have to shoot here on this day and the sun's going to go behind the building at two o'clock, then I have two choices. You know, I can either plan for the sun, try and get all those angles before that happens, have some artificial lighting here and hopefully try to try and replicate the natural sunlight as much as possible, or I can shade them, you know, and there's variations of all those decisions, you know, go into the process, depending on the staging of the scene and the, you know, the resources that are available to you and, and all that stuff. And, you know, some directors are more, more aware of those limitations and those challenges than others. And, you know, so the role of the DP is you're sort of trying to communicate the things you're up against and, uh, you know, with the director in relation to the overarching challenges the production has in terms of its resources and its time and all the, and all of that, you know? Just out of curiosity, what app has helped you the most on, on tech scouts in regards to uh, calculating the sun direction? Yeah, you know, I've been using Sun Surveyor. Sun Surveyor seems to be the one that I've landed on. I mean, we have obviously mentioned him throughout our conversation, but I'd be remiss not to ask you about your personal and creative relationship with David Fincher. You know, you've spoken about the fact that you guys feel in sync visually. If you had to describe and translate Fincher's visual style into specific technical choices, how does he describe it, especially in your tone meetings? And why do you think he brings the best out of you as a cinematographer? Well, you know, David doesn't really make mistakes. He makes choices. And he's very aware of the fact that everything we're doing on a movie set is a choice. It's about acceptance. You know, like moving on is about acceptance. It's like recognizing the other 15 shots you have to make, you have to get to make the scene work editorially and, and figuring out how much, how much time resources to, to put towards each one, right? You know, for David and I, it's, it's very much about looking at the scene, looking at the conditions of the location or the scene present us and figuring out the best approach. And, you know, I mean, I love working with David because I can have simultaneously a very abstract philosophical conversation about theme, about story, about what it is we're actually trying to present the audience and while simultaneously having a very technical conversation around contrast ratio and overexposure of a background or, you know, sun position and that's super rare with a with a director you know so being able to have that communication with someone is fantastic because he understands the challenges that i'm presented with and helps me solve them so we're never you know we're never at odds uh, i mean we have disagreements like anybody you know sometimes i i say well let's look at it over here or whatever you know and he's all he's he's very generous in that way you know he'll look at you know be like yeah okay let's take a look and sometimes he'll run with it and sometimes he won't but you know it's my conversation with david is never about ego it's very much about sort of trying to find the best solution for, for each, each situation. And thus far, it's, it's been fantastic. It's been a fantastic relationship, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I adore him. I mean, you know, we have great time together, but you know, it's, it's, it's because he's unbelievably experienced and his understanding of cinema vocabulary is extraordinary. You know, there's a lot of conversation, obviously about the multiple takes thing. And I think it's interesting, not as much to discuss, how many takes, but why one would follow this approach. So on one end, like we've all heard about directors like David or Kubrick who do 32 takes of a character, you know, pulling a wallet or flashing an FBI badge because over the course of these takes, the actors stop 
acting and starts living a scene because within the context of the story, it's supposed to be second nature to them. And maybe it doesn't feel natural if you only do it two or three times. And on the other end, you hear about actors like Mark Ruffalo who discuss their experience acknowledging the fact that they're only 10% of the frame. And because the timing of the camera operating is hitting a high spot in take two and the extra in the background is still lagging and take seven and you and David are going for that 100%, you guys are gonna wait until everybody's best in the same moment. And that's a magic moment. Could you talk about how doing 20, 30, 40 takes has not only an impact on the acting, but I'm sure on yourself and the operator as well. How does your performance or perception of a scene evolve from take one to take 40? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been slightly hyperbolized, the amount of takes, but we do do a lot on Mindhunter, we did anyway, and I would say that all the directors embrace that idea. Look, there's something to be said for spontaneity, and it would be a shame to not discount the magic, so to speak, that, that does happen, and that's fantastic. I think the opportunity to explore it further is worth the risk if you have the time. And so I think for us on the show anyway, perfection is a worthwhile pursuit and you never quite get there, but it's worth, it's, it's a really good target and everyone's going to have their different definition of perfection. But, you know, we are really trying to make something very, very manicured and very organized and very structured which requires practice and it requires precision and it requires rehearsal. Executing those sorts of shots doesn't just happen on take one, rarely. And it rarely happens on take four. And it has everything to do with, you know, practice and repetition and muscle memory. And, and absolutely, I think that in, in my experience, there is something that happens with actors working on something to the point where it is, it is literally just instinctive. And I think you see it in the theater, you know, that that is what happens in the theater. You perform it night after night. And the show is often better near the end of the performance than it is the first night. You know, there's something to be said for that. And, you know, in cinema, we don't have the luxury of going back and performing it the next night. You know, only one take ever exists in, in the show. So why not pursue it? And why not try it and see see if you get something great? And there is absolutely, you know, this sort of idea of like, well, yeah, the, the performance was fantastic in take six, but the extra in the background tripped, you know, or the, stu- the stormtrooper hit his head on the, on the door jam or whatever, you know, there's like those moments. And it's like, if the audience is laughing at the, at the extra in the background, it doesn't matter how brilliant the performance was in the foreground. So there's, you know, there's all of those things that we do of sort of like judging, did we get it or not, you know, and that's the director's job. And, you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a it's a as much a philosophical conversation as it is kind of just a logistical one. But, you know, as, as a DP, you have to plan for that, because if you are going to take that kind of thing on, it might take two hours to shoot the master. And maybe the sun moves 40 degrees in that period. And, you know, that, you know, at 11 o'clock, it comes through and you have to plan to, to block it at that point. And if you're working with a director that's apt to do one or two takes and move on, those resources aren't necessary. So, you, you know, you sort of have to it's really important to, to know that going into a, a job because it, it affects budget and human resources and all of those things.
my final few questions, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Mank and just to give some context to listeners, you know, the story follows screenwriter uh, Herman Mankiewicz, his journey, you know, to write Citizen Kane alongside Orson Welles. You and Fincher shoot the movie for Netflix between November of 2019 and February 2020, and I'm just happy to hear that it's a black and white movie. And I was just wondering, how did this monochromatic opportunity inform your choices for lighting and composition and anything from location to production design? Sure, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much because I want people to see the movie with, with fresh ears, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, the movie's black and white. It was shot black and white for black and white. It's not color movie that's then been desaturated and, and graded to be black. It was, you know, black and white from the start. And I mean, those opportunities are few and far between in a cinematographer's career. So I'm thrilled to, you know, to, to, to be able to do it. And I hope it's not the last time I get to do it because it was an extraordinary experience. And, you know, I mean, the movie is also period. So it, it is to a large degree paying homage to movies of the period for obvious reasons. So we, you know, that affects lighting style. I mean, the kind of ambient, you know, low key top light practical kind of aesthetic is not really appropriate. Um, so, you know, that's fun to flex those muscles and exercise those things a little bit more because it's not typically something that, that I've done a lot of, you know, my, I sort of the work, I guess I'm known for the kind of work I normally do is this kind of moody top light practicals, very low light level kind of thing. And we were doing deep focus, large amounts of light, more sculpted kind of lit scenes, which is fantastic opportunity because it's just, I haven't done a lot of that lately. So I don't know. It's, I hope people enjoy the movie because we certainly worked hard on it. <laughs> you know, you obviously do have a deep understanding of, of the history of lighting. I was just wondering how did classic Hollywood cinema impact your approach to lighting the actors and how did your experience evolve from the way you thought you were going to light and portray 1930s Hollywood to the way you actually did? I think that people associate black and white with film noir a little bit naively. And I, to some degree, did as well. You know, I mean, that's what I think cinematographers are seduced by it. You know, it's, it's so tempting. But in reality, the canon of black and white photography is incredibly varied, all the way from, from French New Wave to film noir to glamour. And the techniques are all varied. So it, for me, it, it very much came down to figuring out, really, where did we fit in that spectrum aesthetically and when did we want to accent those certain sort of things? You know, because the movie has elements of noir, but it's not a, it's not a classic noir film. It has elements of glamour, but it's not a classic Hollywood glamour film. You know, it, it is sort of touching on all those aspects while simultaneously telling an entire story, right? So, you know, you sort of look for those moments in the movie and then figure out what's appropriate scene to scene and then piecing it together sequentially to make sure that it, it felt appropriate all the way across the story, you know, because you don't want to admit, you know, you don't want one scene to be really striking and, and noir and, and graphic. And then you go into this, the, the next scene is very natural. That could be incredibly distracting to the audience. So it's like figuring out where you put your foot on the throttle and when you back off and, and figuring out how much, because it's a little different than in color, you know, in color, the audience is so accepting with style. Now you can be quite gestured, I think, before they they're taken out of it, out of the story rather. So, you know, it's sort of, but but in black and white, it, it, you know, you can go so much further. You know, it's, it's very much about judging your own subtlety, I guess. I, I know that David's dad wrote the screenplay. And obviously we would have to ask him, but did you feel like David discussed the project differently because the screenplay came from such a personal place? And to you, I was just curious if by the end of the shoot, you are now looking at Citizen Kane as a movie differently. 
Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think David, every time I've worked with David, he's, he gives 120% to everything. You know, he's always, he's the most invested person on the set in the project. This was no different. So I, I have no frame of reference to suggest that he was more or less, you know, I mean, he was absolutely passionate and invested in the project, but that's, that's consistent with every, every experience I've had with him. But I mean, it, you know, Citizen Kane, I think for me has always been an incredibly influential movie. I mean, to a large degree, it's why it, it was maybe the first movie I, I saw where I recognized, I sort of started to understand what a cinematographer was because the movie is so striking and so different from anything else of the period. And, you know, as a result of this movie, I think I'll always have a kind of a connection to that film more so than I did before we made Mank because I'm, I mean, I know that movie so well now, <laughs> you know, I mean, we really, you know, I really watched it so many times and, and kind of got very fractal about, about technique and style and, but, you know, it's it's not like we were trying to emulate or replicate Greg Toland or, you know, it's, that's not really the movie. So it's, you know, we, we certainly are paying homage, I, I suppose. But I, I could would never suggest that I, I trying to beat Greg Toland or anything, you know, <laughs> be so irresponsible to say. So definitely still a fan. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz, New York playwright and drama critic turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. My last question as we wrap things up regards your legacy, Eric. You started out, it sounds like you started out in your career as an assistant to Gregory Crutzen. We could spend hours just talking about that. I just wonder, like, what has the evolution of your style taught you about yourself as a cinematographer? And what has the conversation been like in regards to the work you have already produced and the work you're still looking to produce? Well, I mean, I think I don't want to be... I never want to be hired because uh, someone likes the work I've done. I want to be hired because someone thinks that I can do good work with them, you know? And so I'm not really, I mean, I have aesthetic sensibility that I, that I draw from and certainly the people I've worked with contribute to that. But the thing that excites me about filmmaking is kind of, there are so many different ways to make movies. And, and, you know, for example, I be fun to go do a, handheld movie with six people and and you know i would love to do a, a dogma 95 film you know or go you know just like really work outside the box and try to try different things so it's i'm really interested now anyway in my career with like working with interesting filmmakers and trying different techniques and exploring things and bringing you know bringing what i bring to the table but also you know like seeing how that mixes with everyone else's history and their own experience and their own ambitions, you know, because it's, it's not about what I do, quote unquote, it's, it's like, what can we make together? You know, Eric, it's been a blast going down a rabbit hole for the last week and a half watching all of Mindhunter again and all the interviews. I have learned so much from in an hour and I, I just can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for everything. You're most welcome. Yeah, no problem, man. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Eric for calling in and to the other Eric, Eric Boss, for doing the final mix on these episodes. 
Mank shines with an amazing cast led by Amanda Seyfried and Gary Oldman as screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. The movie's playing in select theaters and will be released on Netflix December 4th. If you enjoy our program, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We ask you to please help us by taking a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fill us in the files and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>